Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. War in Europe, the conflict in Ukraine escalates. Russia continues to pound targets in Ukraine, including a television tower in Kyiv. International condemnation of the invasion grows and the government vows to help war refugees. We may well see hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of Ukrainians fleeing across the border. Well, this is the scene live in Ukraine tonight as the war in Europe escalates. We'll have the latest news debate and analysis. Get in touch on Twitter with your comments and questions on hashtag TonightVMTV. Tonight, the day's key developments in the Ukraine conflict. The president of Ukraine has warned that his country is fighting for survival, as he called on the European Union to stand with them in the face of Russian aggression. Earlier, Vladimir Zelensky accused Russia of undisguised terror and war crimes as the invading force continued attacks. We are fighting just for our land and for our freedom. Despite the fact that all large cities of our country are now blocked, nobody is going to enter and intervene with our freedom. Well, a short time ago, I spoke to journalist Jack Losh, who had, had to move to Dnipro from Kharkiv following that devastating missile attack earlier on today. Well, yeah, this morning around 8 o'clock, this... Uh devastating missile strike struck Freedom Square, uh, the city hall there. Uh, it's a very beautiful building, actually. I've been walking up and down there for the last week, just before and since the war started. Uh, it's now been reduced to a scene more redolent out of Syria or Iraq than European territory. Um, a big chunk of it blown off the roof, windows blown off, pictures of emergency workers going through there through the, the carcass of the building, through rubble and twisted metal, uh, looking for any survivors and pulling out the ones who didn't make it. I think at the last count, there was about at least 10 dead, uh, with at least a couple of dozen injured. A, a truly devastating attack at the heart of Ukraine's second city. And this comes right on the heels uh, of what some rights groups are calling a possible war crime yesterday, where Russia launched a combination of rockets and cluster bomb attacks on a residential neighbourhood up in the north of this uh, very handsome city, uh, killing and causing multiple casualties among civilians. And clearly, Jack, what we're seeing is a change in strategy here from Russian forces and how they're approaching this war now. Yes, it's, it's very concerning. This is actually signalling um, a deeply worrying 
a tactical shift. Uh, at the beginning, Russia announced that it would be targeting precisely only military infrastructure. Now, from day one, that was proven to be a complete lie. We, we, we've seen civilians suffer the brunt of this multi-fronted invasion. But really, the last 24, 48 hours has taken it to another level where Russia does seem to be drawing on the most brutal tactics of its playbook, which led to immense suffering, death, destruction in theatres such as Chechnya in the 1990s, where it simply carpet-bombed Grozny, the city there, uh, as well as intensifying sieges and aerial bombardments more recently in Aleppo and other Syrian cities. The fact that this is now unfolding in Europe, whereas it's unconscionable anywhere, but the fact that it's happening now in Europe in 2022 uh, it is just, frankly, it, it beggars belief. Uh, journalist Jack Losh, who's in Dnipro tonight, uh, thank you for joining us. Do take care. Thank you. Well, I'm joined now by Minister of State Niall Collins, News Talk presenter Kieran Cudahy, businessman David Horgan, um, managing director of fuel firm Petrol Resources, who's also that managing director of, of the fuel firm Petrol Resources, and independent TD Coho Berry. And you're all very welcome along to the programme tonight. And um, to start with you, we're speaking to, to Jack there from Dnipro, where they're really mounting their defences, Coho. But he's come from Kharkiv, which has really seen true devastation in the past 24 hours. What's your take on the Russian strategy and what they're doing right now and where they're going in this war? Yeah, so it's all about Kyiv. It's all about the, the capital city. It's the seat of government, and Putin wants Kyiv. He's already tried, but Plan A has failed. So Plan A was on the first day. He was using light forces basically to seize the city with paratroopers and uh, heliborne forces, and that utterly failed. So he switched to Plan B now at the moment, and Plan B really is to assemble a very large army north of the city and concurrently to run so-called peace talks. Now, they're not peace talks at all. They're threatening talks. So he's telling the Ukrainians, if you don't surrender, are going to absolutely rubbleize your city. And that's a terrible military word. It means to reduce a city to rubble. And I think we're going to be looking at Plan C because I, I don't see the Ukrainians giving in and surrendering. Yeah, because the sense was with all of this, um, David, that it wouldn't, you know, that, that, you know, a jewel in the crown, a city such as Kyiv, you know, these beautiful cities with these long-established links, you know, with the greater um, Soviet Union, that it wouldn't come to this, that we wouldn't see the sort of pummeling um, that, that Putin, you know, unleashed on Syria and the places like Aleppo. And now that could be the case in somewhere like Kyiv. Well, Kharkiv changed hands four times in World War II, was devastated every time. Kyiv changed hands twice. I mean, these are people who are used to war. And as Montgomery said, the first rule of war is don't march on Moscow. And I fear our political leaders have handled this very badly. We could have avoided this war relatively easily by implementing the Minsk agreements, by making it clear that NATO would not go east. And we could participated in this crisis. Hang on now a second, because NATO aren't in Ukraine, despite Ukraine's pleas for them to be in the country. No, but and they we were encouraged. I mean, NATO announced in 2008 that it uh, was in, in principle open to extending to Georgia and to Ukraine. It's now in the Ukrainian constitution that they're going to become a member of NATO. Yeah, in his speech, in that now infamous address that he, he gave when he kind of announced that he didn't see Ukraine as being a sovereign state and he talked about greater Russian imperialism and those values, NATO didn't come up much in that particular speech. Do you think that was a sort of side issue or do you still believe that's central to Putin's agenda here? I can tell you, you talk to any senior Russian, whether they're pro or anti-government, conservative or socialist, 
they are deeply paranoid about invasion from the West. They've been devastated three times in two centuries. There's also an element of imperial grandeur, a bit like the Brexiteers, a certain amount of harking back to the romance of the past, not to communism, but to maybe Peter the Great. Uh, what do you make of that now, Collins, um, that sense that enough wasn't done at the outset to stop Vladimir Putin from these actions? I, I don't know about that. I don't know if I agree with that. There has been a lot of diplomacy, a lot of time invested in diplomacy. We've seen um, a procession of uh, leaders, international leaders, um, going to Moscow, speaking to Vladimir Putin. Um, a lot of effort at the UN Security Council and General Assembly over the years. Um, but you know how, how we got to this point, I, I think, has taken a lot of people by surprise in terms of the, the, the pace of events over the last number of days. And uh, from our own point of view, I think it's right that uh, our government and the European Union acted as swift as it did in terms of um, coming together with coherent sanctions, uh, which uh, are making an impact and will make an impact uh, day by day. Uh, we're doing what we can, uh, given the size of, given our size, and we're playing our part within Europe. And I think uh, the decision this morning, uh, particularly in relation to, for example, the, the imminent refugee crisis, is very significant also yeah. in terms of preparation for that. Yeah, and we will come to that. But what we're seeing here is, is an escalating and ever-changing situation. Is our response, and we've heard that that response from EU putting on a very unified front, and this half a billion euro in in military aid going to you. Ukraine now. Is that likely to be, will there be pressure on the West, on the EU to do more? I think there will. Uh, I, I think the, the EU will obviously learn lessons from this, but uh, the, the, the European Union project, um, you know, a lot of commentators have commented how we have to adapt quicker, how the, how the European Union will have to look to expand. We have to look at our, our candidate countries in terms of uh, the pace of accession. Um, Are you referring to Zelensky's, President Zelensky's call for Ukraine to be part of the EU and to be formally made part of the EU? Well, absolutely. That, that will be a process. Um, uh, we support, obviously, their, their, uh, their intention, but we do recognise that there's a process yeah. within, within the EU treaties. Uh, wh what I'm saying is the European Union has stepped up uh, the government has stepped up, but obviously more will be required as time goes on. This isn't going to be, uh, I fear, a short, a short war or a short process. The question is, Kieran, what is the what is the more here, and and what can be done without escalating this further and bringing widening this war beyond the borders of Ukraine? Well, it's it's hard to know how you, you you contain it as is because it's hard to know what the end game is. I don't know if anyone here, I don't know if Vladimir Putin knows what the end game is. Carl talked about plan A, B, C and D. I mean, I don't know what the plan is after that. And, and that's the difficulty because uh, Niall is right. There's going to be a pressure on, uh, on the EU to continue that flow of support. I mean, if it is the case, and it certainly looks like it's going to be the case, that Russia gets bogged down in, in, a, in a much more protracted conflict in the Ukraine, it's not going to be a one-off package of support from the European Union. They won't get yeah. away with that. It's going to, it, it is going to continue, and that pressure will continue. And consequently, the pressure will continue on the Irish government to make its case state its case much more clearly as to our role in terms of that support. Yeah, like, I mean, I, you know, and where we stand in all of this, it's an interesting one, isn't it, Cahill? Like, well, you've been on the, the show before, you've talked about our neutrality in the face of what we saw was 
aggression off the coast and the fishermen intervening there. But like, let's talk about like the EU has been very much emboldened by all of this. But aren't we moving closer to EU militarisation? And where does Ireland sit in all of that? Because we've now said, well, we're not politically neutral, yeah. though we are militarily neutral. Like, what's that about? Yeah. So it's, it's obviously very, very grey. I was actually in Paris on Thursday and Friday of last week. Uh, there was a parliamentarian meeting from a defence and security point of view. But you get to liaise with the other delegations. I get to speak to the Finns and, and the Swedes who are also neutral countries, are actual neutral countries, they said they have absolutely no problem providing lethal weapons uh, to Ukraine. And the reason they gave was very, very specific. They see this as a self-defence mechanism. They said they have no idea where the Russian armour and tanks are going to stop and whether they're going to go for Finland or Sweden next. So they said they have absolutely no difficulty handing over lethal weapons because inherent in any neutral country is a, as, is a, as a right to self-defence and they're evoking that right now. A preemptive strike at that, though, from their point of view, coming coming as they do from from a neutral stance. It is unusual. It has changed our definition of what is neutral. Um, and what do you think about where where Ireland is standing in all of this? Because, as I said, that 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 whole play that we are politically neutral, um, we're trying to keep clean. But is it actually really possible when we're part of the EU that's making this big, you know? arms fund available. Yeah, I don't think we've ever been neutral at all. Um, yeah. Never an actual neutral country. We're just pretenders. Um, we're, we're neutral frauds, basically. We, we pretend to be neutral to justify underfunding our military, which we've done for decades. And when it suits us, we don't want to get involved. And when it does suit us, we do get involved. So how I see it going is we're certainly not politically neutral. We're completely focused on the European Union and embracing Ukraine as a European Union member. And that's going to come to some decision-making uh, over the next few days and weeks, I suspect, when yeah, we have to get off the fence, finally. Yeah, time to get off the fence now, Collins. What do you make of that? I mean, this is the question that has been asked with this big aid package and that we're saying, look, we'll pay for the fuel, but we're not paying for the tanks. Um, yeah, splitting uh, hairs here, aren't we? Uh, you know, that's that's the charge we leave ourselves open to. We have been. Well, what do you think of that charge? We, we have been militarily neutral for years, as we know, and Carl has uh, described it as being a, a fake neutral position. It has served us well uh, up until this point in time. But I think um, as time goes on, there will be proposals which will come from Europe, which we will have to think and we will have to have a, a, a deep discussion and a long look into ourselves in terms of the, the positions that we're taking. But the positions that we're taking right here and now are, are well known. We're politically not not neutral but we are military, militarily neutral or uh, militarily neutral but po but politically we're prepared to take a stand right um, but do you think that should change um, no I don't no I don't I think the government is right to take that yeah. position right now um, and, and I think the, the point which Cahal makes in terms of um, our defence forces we have established a commission which is reported as you know and there is a, a, an acceptance and a recognition that we, there has been an underfunding of our defence forces in terms of equipment and personnel and resourcing to that uh, that's, that's all part of the mix also which has to be uh, uh, heavily invested in going into the future in terms and of part, our approach. And, and probably part of our budget then really when we're looking at defence spending. Yes. That's the reality, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Um, David, on this, you know, we heard Leo Varadkar branding Putin Hitler of the 21st century um, this week. That's new language from a neutral country. And it's ludicrous. I mean, the, the situation in Germany in the 30s was that Germany was a revanchist power short of natural resources who, which wanted Lebensraum, living space. Russia is the opposite. It has far too much living space for a stagnant population and far more natural resources than it can ever develop itself. Uh, so it's a silly comparison, and particularly insensitive with the Russians who lost 27 million dead in World War II in just four years. Imagine that, six million dead a year. Mm. It's no wonder they're paranoid.
All right, but I mean, launching this unprovoked war, well, you know, it, it's going to. It was to... provoked. Like, who provoked it? it, it, it who provoked Ukraine. It? I don't but know. This nonsense. Sorry, David. This nonsense that they've been. Have you, have you spent this, time this, there? This, have you spent this, time there? Have, I've been to Russia. Yes, I have. have you been? And actually, in fact, I was yeah. in Russia when they invaded Georgia. So they have form yeah. in this yeah. regard. But I was in the country when they, when they sent their tanks over the border yeah. of another sovereign country. Again, all about Soviet grandeur. And I'm sorry, but this nonsense that you parroted earlier about, about NATO expansion, right? The Baltic states are independent. It is completely infantilizing to describe NATO expansion into the Baltic states. They applied for NATO membership. They're adults. They know what they're doing. Well, the, 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 going back to the, the Russian Empire, the relations with Finland and the Baltic states was always quite different to that with, say, Poland and Ukraine. Uh, and you, if you look at the border, you can see why, because Russia has no natural defences. But the, Ukraine itself is a divided society. It's like Northern Ireland. The community in uh, the east, uh, a third of the population is Russian-speaking and Orthodox. And the community in the west um, is Ukrainian nationalists, I have friends there, but they take pride sometimes. I can show you photographs. You can see World War II machine pistols and helmets. Uh, this is a very personal thing. There were a lot of atrocities on both sides. Does it justify sides. what's happening now? Does it justify this, this invasion that's happening now that's not. gone beyond this Donbass region and those, those Russian-speaking no, regions that you speak invading of? Invading somebody else's country is in breach of international law. It, it's quite clear uh, and not, it's not disputed. Similarly, the invasion of Iraq was a breach of international law. Well, that is true. Now, war is always a human tragedy and people continue to try and flee danger zones within Ukraine. The latest estimates suggest close to 700,000 people have now fled across borders. Among them is an Irish woman from a Ukrainian background who's just made it back here from Ukraine. She and her father spoke to our news correspondent, Zara King. So we didn't drive straight to the border. We drove to Lviv first because that's where my dad was staying and all his stuff was there. He just tried to get me out of the city that was being bombed. Um, he got his stuff and we drove out to the Polish border with my granddad and my nanny because I was like, you're, you're coming with me. And we were at the border and the queue to get to the actual border was 20 kilometers, just standing cars. And that was it. And there was no movement. And if there was any movement, it was very little. My granddad, he is over the age of 70, so he was allowed out. But even though my dad, um, he's lived in Ireland for over 25 years, probably, and he now lives in Portugal and he's res residency there, they didn't let him out. They told him to get out of the car and he has to go back into the city. So um, my dad is still over there. And I was able to get out with my auntie, my nanny and my granddad. And the minute we got over the border, we got to Poland, my granddad dropped us off. We were by four and he went back in to take my dad and drive him back into the city and try to figure stuff out. That must have been just so upsetting saying goodbye to your Yeah, like I clenched onto him. I didn't want to let go of him. And I, I had like, I was like, should, should I just stay? Like, should I not go? Any man that was there, they got all got sent back and every child was crying and, and it's absolutely heartbreaking seeing kids leave their dads. And I know I'm 20 but as well, I'm daddy's girl and it was like, I, I didn't want to leave him there. It's crazy, it's like a movie, you know, I never see this. It's like, the people with, with the dogs, cats, with everything, kids, he's crying, he's mad. You cannot leave Ukraine, but you also cannot join the fight. So tell us about that. Yes, you're right. 
because when it comes to, to the gathering point for volunteers, uh, you just ask me if I have any experience in the, in the war or any military um, education. So I don't have nothing this. So and she say, just go away from here. You can go just protect your city, just like uh, local guards. At this point, do you know when you will see your daughter again? No idea. When the war finishes. Yes, when we win. And yeah. everybody should support us. I hope. And that's just one family there, of course. Um, they're, they're one of many families that are in this situation right now. Um, Simon Coveney today saying, look, 20,000 refugees com could be uh, coming this way. Uh, the minister asking people to open their doors in terms of offering refuge to those affected families. There has certainly been a huge outpouring from Irish people in, in, in relation to all of this and to, into what they're seeing on their screens um, all day, every day. Will Irish people, do you think, be supportive of that call? I think they will. I, I think if you look over uh, recent history, for example, the Syrian crisis, uh, Irish people opened their homes. Um, we were very quick to act in relation to um, refugees from Afghanistan. We've, we've expanded actually the scheme for um, Afghanistan people here in terms of allowing them to bring in family, uh, a limited number of family members. I think the government was right. Um, it was a good decision to um, bring in a, a visa waiver. Uh, in terms of um, people coming from Kiev, um, that they don't have to have uh, a visa coming in and there's no limit being placed on numbers and people will be allowed there's to work and avail of services. In terms of Afghan families coming in here who've been here now, and you, you mentioned Syria as well, yeah. um, the numbers weren't, weren't as great. Um, and also, where, where are the Afghan families? They're staying in places like Mosny, that now are they? Um, not, not all of them. Um, so, some of them um, have been housed by local authorities. Some have been housed by uh, agencies like the like the Red Cross, uh, family support agencies. Mm. Uh, there was a big effort that time. Uh, there will be a big effort again this time. The, there's a high level. Uh, the Secretary General of each department has been tasked by government uh, to gear up in terms of um, preparation uh, for uh, a potential influx of people from the Ukraine. So um, uh, social welfare, education health, uh, the children's departments, you know, all of the key, well, uh, the key stakeholder departments in terms of looking after people and their welfare are all uh, preparing, um, preparing intensely and ramping up for this. OK, um, you know, on that, Cahill, because you'd be familiar with war situations and the outcome of these situations, which when we do see big humanitarian crises, um, we're taking 20,000 people. There's likely to be um, millions uh, um, fleeing the country. Um, and, and it's really something that Europe's going to have to grapple with and, and help and support. Yeah, absolutely. So I got to speak to the Romanian delegation again in, in Paris last week and they were keen to point out that already 10,000 had crossed the border on the first day. They're expecting half a million uh, refugees in the first month or so to, to stream into Romania. So Ireland, as a member of the EU, will be expected to, to take its share. I, I, I'd agree with what Niall was saying there, that I do detect that the Irish people do genuinely uh, you know, recognise the, the genuine nature of this. And I think the key thing is to mobilise the Ukrainian community actually here in Ireland at the moment. A lot of Ukrainians have been in touch with me. They have spare rooms in their house and they're very, very willing to take refugees in. Um, you know, it is something here and that has also been spoken about in light of how we respond to this war and um, how we feel like a, a care and an affinity with these people. 
does it reflect on our response, though, with previous conflicts and previous wars and how we're reacting to this? You know, there was mention there of um, Syrian families coming over and Afghan families, and I'm not sure the response was the same. No, it, I don't think it was uh, the same, or certainly the rhetoric maybe what was the same, but the numbers probably won't translate when it comes out in the wash. I, I, I suspect it will turn out that we will take far more Ukrainians uh, over the long run that, than we did take Afghans. Now, that's not to, to dismiss you know, individual acts of generosity. We talk about where some of those Afghans were living. Kieran Cannon, the Fine Gael TD, put two of them up in his home. Two of them lived with him, having mm -hmm. fled Kabul, and lived with them for about three weeks before, before finding accommodation themselves. So that there are individual acts of kindness. But, but I suspect what you're touching on is true. Now, look, a, a bit of that is you can call it racism, a bit of it is human nature mm -hmm. that, you know, we, it's, it's that old thing of like, you know, a, a car crash that happens in Ballinasloe Slow matters more to us than a car crash that happens in Brisbane. Things that, things that we identify more with, yeah. we respond more to on a human level. Um, on this, David, where do, where do you think it's all going to go? We, we talk about the humanitarian crisis, but what are we likely to see, do you believe, um, with this conflict now at this point? Well, the overwhelming priority is to to fix it, to make peace now, because you know millions of refugees are not good for anyone. Casualties are not good for anyone. Um, you know, the solution is Finland. You know, Finland is a fiercely independent country. It's in the EU. It's not part of NATO. It fought three wars with the Soviet Union. It lost two of them. Uh, Finland is the model for Ukraine. What about their response and what they've already promised in terms of military aid to Ukraine? Well, the fin if you study Finnish history, I mean, they, they have a long history of shenanigans with Russians. Uh, but the reality is that they have a treaty obligation not to join NATO and they've honoured that treaty. OK, we'll have to leave it there. My thanks to Cahill. Niall, David and Kieran are staying with me. Next, the growing consumer cost of the conflict. Stay with us. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back, Minister of State Niall Collins, News Talk presenter Kieran Cudahy, and businessman David Horgan of Petro Resources are still here with me, and we're joined by the currency business correspondent Rosanna Cooney. Um, you're very welcome to the programme, Rosanna. Um, when we talk about the fallout of all of this and the, the, the economic impact of it, uh, energy prices is one that immediately comes to mind, and we're, we're heading into a really uncertain, unstable period, aren't we? Absolutely. I think whether the war was to end tomorrow and 
you know, if, if this was to end immediately. I think that we are still facing fluctuations for the next six months. Consumers are going to face much inevitably higher energy cost prices. And I think like it's it's really unfortunate, but it is an inevitability. And I think there probably will have to be some sort of response from the government, whether it's, you know, we've become so accustomed to these stimulus packages from COVID. I think it's going to have to be something on that scale to help people get through it, to feed your fire and to, to really just keep going because it, it will be that dramatic. Yeah, it's interesting because we got this cost of um, cost of living, these measures, these suite of measures as the government announced to, to ease the burden on households. Uh, it looks like it's just not going to be enough now. Yeah, and that was a response to emerging from COVID in terms of inflation, which was COVID-related coming off the back of the pandemic. And government did respond, as you've said, uh, with a package. And that was in addition to the package um, which was introduced in the budget um, late last year for this year. Um, and a number, enough? Uh, a number of those measures combined uh, are beginning to take effect. So we now have the the situation in the Ukraine, which is going to, uh, this is going to exacerbate uh, energy prices. I think everybody has agreed in relation now, to that. And we knew about this before Christmas. I mean, this is why we were seeing sort of energy price rises sort of in December and even before that this was being talked about. Yeah, so it's becoming particularly acute now with the war kicked off in the last number of days. But uh, Simon Coveney said today that the European Union, um, this has been talked about now in terms of European Union, um, in terms of um, member states, um, it's under consideration. It's been reported that um, um, you know, consideration has been given to allowing member states uh, more flexibility in terms of addressing um, the, I suppose the component parts of uh, fuel prices. Right, so you're talking about the price of the pump and all those extra duties and taxes and all that yeah, that we so pay like, that makes up what sixty like percent of the the government cost has been the, the government has been very clear all along. All of this is outside of our control in terms of the international dynamic because we're we're, we're price takers and we're we're buying in from. Well, not uh, on the excise duty. Not on. There are things that we can we can. Yeah, we're, we're restricted. For example, restricted in relation to VAT. Um, um, the Taoiseach has said that we didn't want to introduce a mini budget. You know, you bring in a mini budget to to change tax rates and excise rates. Uh, we have to also uh, counter that with keeping in mind that you have to fund our public services, the provision yeah, of our so public services. Do you think services. that will change? Is what you're saying? The word is from Europe that we will have more well, flexibility around that. You know, we're in a very evolving situation, but okay. it is under consideration in Europe. All right, that that's under consideration. Um, uh, your view on this? I mean, look, this is your area around oil and gas and eventually what we were going to end up paying. Um, we are hearing, and I think you were talking about it a couple of weeks ago, that we could see um, you know, the prices, how soon we're going to see those prices feed through at the pump as a result of what's happening um, in Ukraine and the, the, the getting to the, the two euro litre mark. Do you think we're going to see that very soon? Yeah, well, it, it takes about five or six weeks for the crude price to feed through to the forecourt. Uh, so, in a sense, that has already happened. You just haven't seen it yet. Always remembering that you know, the percentage increase will be lower than in the market because most of what we pay goes to the exchequer. And the government has been loading us with, with new carbon taxes. Uh, we've got 23% VAT across the top on your fuel. Uh, you've got about 66 cent uh, excise duties. And then the carbon tax is going up now to, what, 40 euros a tonne, with intention to go to 80 or maybe more if uh, the Greens have their way. This is a self-inflicted crisis. Uh, just seven years ago, Ireland was a hot spot for gas exploration. We had a flood of new companies in, uh, an excellent yeah. bid round. Well, and then, the argument around that is that they said, look, we, we, we did stall all that 
all that exploration because we need to be more sustainable. But and we, we, need to, we need to invest in renewables. But the only renewables of size we have in Ireland is intermittent wind. Wind's great on a windy day like this week, but there's been times when wind has been only 2 or 3% of the supply. For those times, you need gas-fired backup because we don't have nuclear power. We have limited connection. So we have to go for gas. Okay, Kieran, do you think people are expecting this? They will really, uh, really feel it in the pocket. We're already feeling the pinch of, of the escalation on the level that we're, we're actually likely to see now. Oh yeah, no, they, they absolutely will. Like it's only, a, it is only a matter of time before we. we it's it's two euro at the pump. I think it was one eight. Is it one eighty one or whatever it was at, the, at most petrol stations today for people who are putting petrol in the tank. For people like me who commute from Kilkenny to Dublin, I tell you, I already notice mm. uh, the price. Like it, I, I, I do have some pity for for, for government in that sense. I mean, the suite of measures they announced. Uh, yeah, I can appreciate that, you know, the, the, the war drums were beating, but there was still an expectation, I think, that it could be avoided, that, that it wouldn't happen. The real danger now is actually that Vladimir Putin never expected, I don't think, the level of sanctions and the level of support and the unity that mm -hmm. has been shown by the EU and NATO. And the real fear, I think, around government circles, uh, and not just in Dublin, but right around Europe, is going to be that in retaliation to things like getting kicked out of the SWIFT banking system, that he just turns off the tap. That, that our actual energy supply gets interrupted. And then we're back to, what, the 1970s and rationing? Yeah. Uh, I mean, th this, is, this is something that has also been put out there that the idea of rationing is something that we, we could actually possibly see here, Rosanna, um, you know, as a result of all this happening. It's, it's the fallout from these sanctions. Uh, in terms of the impact of these sanctions, um, and the focus has been put on, on Russian money in this country, um, we're looking at it in a way we haven't before. Absolutely, and there's been some great work being done in the currency at the moment, especially by a colleague of mine, Thomas Hubert, who's actually tracked the amount of Russian money that's currently under sanction in the IFSC. So the amount of this money just flowing and being funneled from Moscow to the IFSC. And currently there's 13 billion euro of sanctioned frozen assets there. And I mean, this isn't a surprise. This is something that's been going on for a long time. These mm -hmm. Russian shell companies, um, you know, they're being held on behalf of banks and businesses, this money. And it's only now with wartime sanctions that we're kind of seeing the extent of the money that's there. I think what's happening now is there's serious questions that need to be asked on the Irish government of kind of the opaqueness with which this, this flowing of cash has been carried out where we don't know who the beneficiaries are. We don't know really where the money's even coming. It's happening in a shadow banking system. And I know all that can sound a bit convoluted, but I think it's important to focus on that these are a special, special purpose vehicles and they issue bonds, they act mm -hmm. as holding companies, they trade in debt, they're intermediaries. So what that actually means is that they don't employ people here, they might have a post box rather than an office, they don't pay tax because they don't make profit here. And so it's quite interesting that this has happened to have these holding companies here because yeah, yeah, uh, because it, it's it's clearly more visual in somewhere like London, where we know there's a lot of property owned by Russians. We hear about oligarchs all the time. We don't hear about it here in Ireland, but it's busy and alive in the IFSC, David. We're a relatively minor player. I mean, the biggest tax haven by far. I mean, we're, talk we're talking big money here, aren't we? Not, not you compare it Billions. with you, you compare it with. Uh, Liechtenstein, Switzerland, London. London's the biggest single tax haven in the world. 
What's happened yeah, in Ireland? For our size and for our economy, it's pretty substantial. And isn't that great? Think of the number of tax accountants and auditors who are paying their mortgage with these fees. Yeah, do you take issue though with this idea and, you know, like that it. Some would say it, okay, not laundering perhaps, but certainly, you know, taking taking advantage of a, of a, of a tax regime here in a way that isn't, you know... It's your fiduciary duty to shareholders to uh, minimise the tax by avoidance. Evasion's criminal, but you're entitled to avoid tax. That's what directors are supposed to do. Uh, what's the government doing about all of this? Yeah, and this, this was addressed in the doll by Michal Martin today. Um, you know, the, the issue of the IFSC was raised and he, he, he pointed out that um, there's a legal responsibility on everybody within the state to comply with the sanctions in terms of uh, processing and uh, business processing of money and that, 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 in that sector. The central bank has, um, and Michal Martin uh, put it on the doll record today that the central bank has carried out um, mm. a review and there's about 3,000 Irish domiciled uh, what are called special purpose entities and 34 right. of those have a Russian sponsor with a value of 36 billion. So the, the central bank is, uh, is watching this and is aware of this and the sanctions are there and anyone who breaches the sanctions is guilty of a criminal offence. I guess with these sanctions, the hope is from a government point of view or just a, a general point of view, Europe and, and the West as well, that it's the Russians that will feel it in Russia, Kieran. Well, sorry, they will feel it. They're already feeling it. I mean, they might not necessarily feel it in the supermarkets as quickly as we might. Russia's an incredibly self-sufficient company in, country in terms of food production, but it's not a huge economy. Now, the Russian economy, sometimes we kind of, I think, we're still in a Cold War mentality. We think of it as, 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 as a global superpower financially. Like, it's not. It's a smaller economy than the Italian economy. Now, what they have managed to do over the last few years, what Vladimir Putin has managed to do, is build up a huge amount of foreign exchange through oil and gas. And now he can't get his hands on that foreign exchange. Now, that's, that, that is problematic for Vladimir Putin. Mm. It's particularly problematic if he pursues Plan C that we were talking about before the break and he pummels Kiev and has to rebuild it. Briefly, David. Yeah. What's the point of sanctions? It's, sanctions are supposed to modify behaviour. How does declaring economic war on ordinary Russians influence Putin or the Russian army? It's completely but futile. How, how else do you stop him? Do a deal. Undertake What's the deal? The, the deal is Finland. Autonomy, implementing the Minsk Accords, which are already signed, and say that NATO will not extend east into Ukraine. But that's giving up sovereignty. You're, a, you're asking Ukraine to commit to giving up their own sovereignty. We, we will not apply to join NATO in the future. That's giving up sovereignty. Yeah. Would, would you yeah. advocate here that Ireland advocate, that Ireland would give up a certain degree of sovereignty? To, Immediate to, to and terrible Kingdom? war. That's what the British said to us. Cuba has incomplete sovereignty. Little countries beside big countries are constrained. There's a difference between de facto so and de jure. Exactly. Better to avoid casualties right. and refugees. Okay, uh, we'll have to leave it there. Many thanks to Rosanna, to Niall, Cahill and Kieran who are still with me. Coming up next, information wars and the part that propaganda plays in modern warfare. Stay right there.
Welcome back, Minister of State Niall Collins, News Talk presenter Kieran Cudahy, David Horgan are all still with me, and we're joined by Kinsan journalist Razan Ibrahim. Razan, you're welcome along to the programme. Um, and what we want to talk about now is, I suppose, the, the, the information warfare that's at play here, a weapon or a tool in this fight. Um, and on that, what we've seen is the Ukrainian messaging machine really in overdrive on social media. They're proving to be really good at this, aren't they? How are they doing it? Uh, absolutely. So uh, because they have the right as well, which is something important. Uh, who's invading who? This is another big question. So they are the underdog. They have the right to defend themselves. And they find that social media would be a strong mean for them to tell their stories and also to say what is happening in reality and to tell the stories of a human struggle, human suffer, etc. But uh, as you were saying, it's been um, unbelievable she sheer of and scale of content coming from social media mm -hmm. uh, full of misinformation disinformation false uh, videos old videos being shared as uh, from today they were even from Syria Iraq Afghanistan China even Mexico but they were being shared as from today so well, yeah you it's tell been... immediately like you're deciphering all of that and you're looking through all of this there's a lot of people looking at it for the first time a lot of people I may add who wouldn't be used to seeing this um, these videos who may not have really been interested in watching news programs like this but suddenly these videos are up on TikTok on Instagram elsewhere and they're, and they're they're looking at them and this is the way they're getting their information yeah absolutely that's why uh, we have to know um, social media is not source of news. If you want to have real news and read real news, we have to go to um, newspapers, trusted journalists, reliable sources, all of that. But uh, I mean, the amount of videos as well we were seeing that they played uh, negatively um, during uh, the Russian as well invasion. So we have, like for example, one video viewed million of time on TikTok and it was taken from a video game, uh, Arma 3, and it was viewed as from Ukraine. Another, for example, um, screenshot uh, from, uh, claimed to be from CNN, mm -hmm. and it shows, or falsely shows as well, that Steven Seagal is actually fighting along with the Russians. This screenshot, false screenshot, was shared thousands of times and shared by accounts who have millions of followers on social media. But I'd, I'd say one important uh, story of misinformation I would like to highlight here. We all remember the uh, Ukrainian woman who was wounded. His face was her face was covered oh, was by front blood. Of, front of all the newspapers Absolutely. and, and she yeah, was hard, heartbreaking um, uh, photo. Uh, I mean, important to mention her name is Helena, and she is 53 year old school teacher. Anyway, what happened, pro-Russian propaganda used this photo and the story of women to say that she is a crisis actor. And this is shocking. This is uh, dangerous as well in times of war because we have to be extremely cautious of what we're sharing, of what we're seeing on social media. But I'd say as well, another narrative that um, mm -hmm. uh, during the war, we see a lot of Russian propaganda machine. Uh, trying to justify the invasion and also trying to um, uh, spread the Kremlin narratives and messages to the people, which is something really dangerous and um, 
Yeah, on that yeah. and and on that, because you know we can give all the examples of what the Ukrainians are doing, and we can see, you know, um, how they're doing that. Various videos that have gone viral of these, you know, resistant fighters, or the woman walking out in the street to, you know, the Russian troops saying, "Get out of my country," and they're all going viral. In what way is the is is the Rus Russian message being controlled in Russia, David? How well, are, what are people actually seeing right now? Because there is a high level of control by Vladimir Putin on what people can see. Oh, yeah. I mean, Russia has no tradition of enlightened media. Uh, you know, it, it's just not part of the Russian culture. And um, there's tight censorship. Under the communist times, they had a sophisticated printing system to produce these zamedzats or magazines. Um, but uh, Russia is not a society where people question the official narrative. But, you, but we do, we have seen people out in the streets protesting, like people are getting access and they're seeing what's happening. They have access to social media. It's the equivalent of people for, for profit, they're not mainstream people. I, I don't think so. I think there was a huge opposition against the Russian invasion in, in Russia. And we see even celebrities um, were speaking against the invasion, mm -hmm. anti-war anti messages. Uh, and we've seen in the, in the first days of the invasion where thousands, even not hundreds of thousands of people in Moscow protested against uh, the invasion. So definitely Russian people, uh, we, have, I'm, I'm, we are seeing a lot of opposition against the war because it is carried out on their name and they don't want it. Uh, Niall, just on this, in terms of like the messaging uh, that we are seeing that people have access to, it is prompting a big outpouring and, and putting pressure on governments to do more, isn't it? Absolutely. Well, we, we live in a, in a social media bubble, in a social media world. So much of uh, current affairs are played out across social media. Uh, despite the challenge of, um, of the disinformation and the fake news um, campaigners. But there's a very important point which um, we've just been touching on there is how is this going to play out in, in Russia in terms of when the sanctions do begin to bite and do begin to have an impact. The Russian central bank uh, is now uh, extremely limited and challenged. Mm -hmm. uh, their currency has crashed. They, their stock market has crashed. Uh, Visa, uh, the SWIFT, we, we know the issues in relation to SWIFT, how that's been impacting uh, the, the major credit cards like Visa are now um, putting restrictions. So all of that is going to impact on the Russian people. So this may not play out for Vladimir Putin. And how they're the, the, going to control that uh, message absolutely. when, uh, you uh, know, you know we, and justifying we, the death news as well. Well, we've, we've, we've seen how they've interfered in elections and how they can do cyber attacks, but they're, they're going to, you know, this is, there's, a, there's a bit to play out in this yet in terms of how it's going to roll out in Russia. Yeah, might, um, might go exactly according to his plan. How influential do you think it all is, Kieran, in, in terms of how we, we're consuming our news and our information now? Like, they, they talk of it as the TikTok war. Yeah, like, it, it is interesting. I suppose the, the war in Syria, which Razan knows much more about than any of us, uh, um, it was probably the first big global conflict or conflict that got global attention uh, where there was a social media element, but it was nothing on the scale that we see now. And, and it's an interesting comparison as well, because... I suppose Syria was so opaque. There were so many different actors and there were so many shifting alliances. And I think a huge degree of confusion, you know, this far away as to exactly what was happening. And it's a little bit different in, in the Ukraine without kind of expressing a view one way or the other, although I don't mind saying what my view is. But I mean, the, the narrative is very clear. There's a kind of a bad guy and a good guy. You know, there are the aggressors and then there are the defenders. And the temptation then, when you're interpreting all of that stuff on TikTok and elsewhere, is just to wholesale dismiss everything to do with the Russians and 
accept everything well, as we're, gospel. We're only really seeing one side. We're, we're not actually, we're not seeing the, the, the Russian message here, are we, Razan? But interestingly, just to mention here that during the Syrian war, uh, Russian government and the Syrian regime as well, they had, they played tactics to spread propaganda and they are doing very similar tactics and they are using the same strategy in the Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, currently. But definitely there is a, a huge flow of information and it is sometimes hard for ordinary people to uh, verify, to differentiate of what is correct, what is not, what is true, what is false, for so example. What people do? Um, definitely because it's time of war, it's time of crisis, we need to be very cautious, especially when we share content. Sharing is responsibility mm -hmm. because we might be contributing to a huge scale of misinformation and we don't want to do that. Uh, it is important as well to go back to the original source. For example, this screenshot or this piece mm -hmm. of news, where does it come from, etc. So this is really important. Okay. Good advice on that. Um, my thanks to you, Roseanne, and to all our panel for joining us tonight. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. Our next news is on Ireland AM tomorrow morning, but from all the late team here, good night. Take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.